Blessed is the man. Blessed is the man. Turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 17. Be looking at verses 5 through 8. As God is speaking through his prophet, this is one of those moments where the prophet says, Thus saith the Lord. And God speaks through his servant, laying out the distinction between one who is cursed and one who is blessed. We need to understand the weightiness of what it means to be cursed by God versus what it means to be blessed by God. As the action of God not only affects us personally, but also our posterity. You just heard in the reading of the law that God will judge to the third and fourth generation those who hate me. It's not just one generation that feels the effects of God's cursing, but several. But then those who receive the benefits of God's blessing, a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. So this action of God, of cursing and blessing, is a very weighty matter regarding our lives here in this world. Being cursed means that you are on the path of diminishing returns. This means that no matter what you invest in life, You will not get back out of life. You will not be able to keep what you have invested in it. That is the path of diminishing returns. This is the message of vanity in Ecclesiastes. All of Ecclesiastes addresses this issue. Generally speaking, this is what the Bible calls the path to ruin. Jesus presents it this way. What if a man gains the whole world? If you have invested your time and energy so that you can gain the whole world and yet you forfeit your own soul so everything that you have tried to secure through time, through your energy, you cannot secure it. You cannot keep it because you forfeit your own soul. You forfeit your own life. You are permanently separated from everything you have strived to secure. This is actually the image of Job losing everything he had sought to gain in this world prior to God coming to his aid. Job lost all his wealth, his children, and even his health as one who strived to secure these things through righteous living. This is the futile plight of any man who places his faith in his own strength, no matter how noble or upright they are in the eyes of their peers. Recognizing that our problem is that we have a sinful nature and that we are prone to sin and rebel against God. On the other side is blessing. On the other side is blessing. To be blessed is to be on the path of increasing returns, culminating in in eternal fellowship with God in heaven through Jesus Christ. Think about that. Increasing returns culminating in eternal fellowship with God in heaven through Jesus Christ. Now this blessing that God gives to us may not appear to be the same blessing that the world approves of in this life. It may not look like blessing to the eyes of the world, but it does to the eyes of God. The Apostle Paul writes, and if you have your Bibles open you can turn there. Put a finger in Jeremiah chapter 17. This is 2 Corinthians 4. Verses 16 through 17. 
The Apostle Paul writes, Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly, physically, we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed, made new, strengthened day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. An eternal glory that far outweighs any troubles, any any difficulties, any trials that you can go through in this life. This is the message of the gospel, the good news that Paul lays out in Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 8. You can turn there if you like. Paul writes, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. This is the eternal glory he's speaking of here. God has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ. In love meaning that this is God's action towards us, not even a hint of our action towards him. This is God working towards us out of love. He predestined us and adopted us as sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. It would take far more than our time here today just to go through this passage in Ephesians Ephesians 1 and look at how God has so marvelously blessed us through His Son, Jesus Christ. To be sure, it is God who increases your joy and secures what He has given you as you place your faith in Him, which is the other side of the book of Job. It is the latter side of the book of Job. After Satan had taken away everything that God had given Job, Because Job tried to secure it through his own righteousness. God had given it back to him through his grace. And we have to remember that God's grace is undeserved favor. It is God's blessing. The reason it is restored to Job is that Job clung to God in faith and hung on to God and God replenished everything that was taken away. Well, for God to replenish that, he has to take it from some place. And he takes it from the treasure store of his son, Jesus Christ. In order order for Jesus Christ to make his treasure, everything that he has secured through his righteousness, for, for Jesus to make it available to Job, he had to pay the penalty for Job in the first place. First, there must be payment for sin, cleansing of the account, and then through God's grace, the replenishing of all that we have lost that God gives us freely through His Son, Jesus Christ, that is secured through His power rather than our own. Only God can do this. That's why we put our faith in Him. So let's look at our text. Jeremiah 17, 5-8. This is what the Lord says. 
Cursed is the one who trusts in man, who depends on flesh for his strength, and whose heart turns away from the Lord. He will be like a bush in the wastelands. He will not see prosperity when it comes. He will dwell in the parched places of the desert, in a salt land where no one lives. But blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. He will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries and a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. Let's pray. Father, please instruct our hearts through your holy word. We know that it is living. May its, may its life bring us life and live and work in us what is pleasing to you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Some have said the best gift a man can give to the world is to be a good father. The best gift a man can give to the world is to be a good father. The problem is, is that not every man is a good father. Not every child is born into a loving home. As our news media likes to remind us. And that's just of what we see on, on the television or on the internet. We know that it goes deeper than that. But what is a good father? You can ask someone who is a father, are you a good father? And they would say yes. You ask their children, they may say no. What is a good father? Who determines what is good? So I want to tweak the statement a little bit. The best gift a man can give the world is to be a godly father. Hear it again. The best gift a man can give this world is to be a godly father. I don't use the word godly in a moralistic way here, where a man strives to use the law of God to pharisaically condemn or berate others. But he uses God's law in a gracious and loving way to instruct and correct in all righteousness, pointing his spouse and children and neighbors to Jesus. A good father may do what's right in the eyes of his peers and his community, but a godly man, a godly father, hungers for the wisdom of God, turning away from his own sinful sense of righteousness through repentance, seeking to know the goodness of God and apply it first and foremost to his own life before he uses God's wisdom as a guide to direct his wife and children and counsel those in, in his community, and so on. What a blessing it is to have a godly father. King Solomon seemed to understand this difference between being cursed or blessed by God exemplified in Proverbs, by one who either seeks folly or wisdom. And the reason this is so important is Solomon understands that these are eternal matters. This is not something that you get tripped up on today and you can correct tomorrow. These are eternal matters. 
If you go down the path of folly, it is the path of diminishing return. It will end up in ruin. For those who travel that path, their final destination is separation from God, and that is eternal separation from God. It's not just for a season. It's not even for a thousand years or ten thousand years. It is permanent. On the other side is God's blessing, the one who seeks the wisdom of God. And that too is eternal. You're eternally forevermore in the presence of God, your Creator, enjoying the life and power and knowledge that is His, which is given to you freely forever. It is the joy of the Lord forever. It is the despair of hell forever. And so folly and wisdom are extremely weighty, weighty matters in his eyes. And he wants to make sure that his son understands how precious, how important wisdom, God's wisdom, truly is. Folly is when a man says in his heart there is no God. Hence, when you look at your Bibles and you look at verse 5 of Jeremiah 17, this is what God says about it. He says through Jeremiah, this foolish man is the one who trusts in man. He trusts in man. Who depends on the strength of the flesh rather than the Spirit of God. This is the man who is satisfied with his own abilities and does not believe he needs any divine help. We look at Job and we think, Job is a righteous man, and he was. He was a righteous man, but was he putting his faith in God for salvation? Or was he trying to do this in a pharisaical manner? Was he trying to achieve righteousness by his own strength? If he was going down that road, even as righteous as he was, it's still going to end in ruin. Because our power is not sufficient. Only God's grace is sufficient. So this is the one, the fool, who is enlightened by the knowledge of the world and forsakes the wisdom of God. You strive to find the answers in humanistic teachings of mankind. Even though reason fails you as your mind cannot truly comprehend the infinite things of God, we do not understand the mysteries of the universe. We only know what we're taught through the ages. Each generation passes on what it has learned to the next generation. And yet can we understand, can we comprehend the eternal, eternal mind of God? No, we cannot. We do not know of life beyond this world, even though we keep looking to the stars instead of looking to God as our Creator. God says to the prophet in verse 6, He is the man, this man is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. This is God's curse and it is utterly horrible to contemplate. It is the curse of diminishing returns. You are so focused on this little patch of property called your life that you can't even see when God's goodness, when God's love is, is manifest right in front of you. 
We, we see it in creation. We, we look at, at, at the crops outside. We look at the trees and the grass and everything. And when we see it parched, we see it, the crops shriveling up. And they're shriveling up because they're trying to hang on for life. The drier it gets, the more they shrivel up. And then they actually start destroying themselves. They burn from the bottom up with the corn. And the beans, they start burning themselves to try and maintain life in whatever life they have left. Until eventually everything is burned up and it dies. It's a horrible sight. It's a sight no farmer ever wants to see. Because that which you have invested in, that which you have poured your life into, has died. It is gone. It is done. And it will produce no fruit. Because it has no life. It just shrivels up and dies. That is the image that we have before us regarding the curse. This is the foolish man in Solomon's book of Proverbs who says in his heart, there is no God. Paul David Tripp reminds us that foolishness is more than just being stupid. He says it's that deadly combination of arrogance and ignorance. That deadly combination of arrogance and ignorance. You don't know, and yet you're proud of what you don't know because you think you're right. And therefore, you're not even aware of when God's goodness comes to your presence because you immediately reject it, putting your confidence in yourself instead of being willing to trust in the Word of God. So this man is like a shrub in the desert. He produces no fruit for his spouse or his family. You've got to think spiritually here, for this is, it is a spiritual world that is eternal. The word of God is not honored. It is the word of sinful man that is exalted. Hence he leads his family to ruin. Can one such as this hear, as I said before, the good news of the gospel, when they are fixed on the news of the world, believing that this world is all there is? Can this person acknowledge the power of God which is revealed in creation? Can he see that God is the source of all life? No, he can't. Not until he's broken of his pride by God's Spirit. And his eyes are open and his ears unstopped. Can he behold the glory of the living Lord? When we look out and we see crops being dry and shriveled, starting to, starting to crinkle up, and then you see a pleasant rain like today that just seeps into the ground nice and slow. And everything that was shriveling starts bouncing back to life. It just starts unfolding. Instead of protecting itself, it unfolds and opens its arms to this blessing from above. That's what it means to be blessed. To receive this blessing from heaven. Throughout the book of Proverbs, Solomon relays to his son how precious wisdom is above all else. Gold, silver, everything that you would deem precious in this life, it doesn't even compare to the wisdom of God. Because God's wisdom is a source of life for us. And yet, did Solomon live what he preached? Did he rely upon the wisdom of God, or did he seek wealth and privilege from the world towards the latter part of his life? There is the initial desire for God's wisdom, but there can come a time when we are prone due to our own sinful pride and our own arrogance to place our faith in our own strength, to place our faith in our own knowledge, and dismiss the wisdom of God, forgetting 
that we need to remain dependent upon his wisdom even as a little child remains dependent upon their parents for protection and provision. We need to remain that way. And yet pride always seeps in and says you don't need God. You don't need his word. You don't need his fellowship. You don't need to pray. You don't need any of these things because you've got this world taken care of by it. You can do this all in your own strength. And when we go down that road, remember that that is the road to ruin because we don't have the power to overcome that which is not only within ourselves, but the evil one who is in this world. Luther said for a reason, on earth is not his equal. If you think that you can contend with the evil one and win, you are sadly mistaken. There's only one who has overcome him, and that is Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. So we need to remember, we need to remember how much we need to depend upon God, his word and his power. Paul David Tripp states, The fatal flaw of human wisdom is that it promises that you can change your relationships without needing to change yourself. He says, Every painful thing we experience in relationships is meant to remind us of our need for God, that childlike faithfulness, that childlike trust in God. And every good thing we experience is meant to be a metaphor of what we can only find in Him. We settle for the satisfaction of human relationships when they were meant to point us to the perfect relational satisfaction found only with God. Hence, in contrast to God's curse is God's blessing. We've been talking about it. The same imagery is found in Psalm 1 as it is here in Jeremiah uh, and several places in Scripture that denote God's spiritual blessing. It's like a tree being near a stream of water. You see it there in verses 7 through 8. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in Him. He will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. This image of a well-watered tree that you see here uh, in, this, in this world represents what God does in your life spiritually through His Holy Word, through the Spirit working through His Word. When you place your confidence in Him, He blesses you, which means that He's always providing for you. One of my favorite passages in all of Scripture is in Genesis 22, where Abraham is, is taking his son Isaac and God calls upon Abraham to place his son on the sacrificial altar. This is God's promise. This is God's blessing manifest in Isaac. That through him all nations will be blessed. Even as it is through you, I will bless the nations through your son. And as he's laying them up, him up on the, on the altar, Isaac knows what's going on. He says, Father, you know, there's the altar and... and where is the sacrifice? And Abraham says, the Lord will provide the sacrifice, my son. Well, Isaac is on the altar. And Abraham's arm is up like this, with a knife in it. And he's coming down. And the angel of the Lord grabs his wrist and says, no, you shall not harm your son. Now I know that you believe that you have faith 
that you trust like a little child, that you are clinging to me, that you are clinging to my righteousness instead of your own. Now I know. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and beheld a ram caught in a thicket. The lamb that God had provided as a sacrifice for his sin. God's grace is that he provided the lamb. He provided the sacrifice for our sin. He provided to pay the penalty for our sin by offering up his only begotten son so that whosoever believes on him should not perish, be cursed forever, but be blessed with life everlasting. This is God's grace. I want to give you one more quote from Dr. Tripp. He says, This is what grace does. It rescues us from our spiritual blindness. It releases us from our bondage to our rationalism and materialism. Grace gives us the faith to be utterly assured of what we cannot see. It frees us from refusing to believe in anything we cannot experience with our physical senses. But grace does more. It connects us to the invisible one in an eternal love relationship that fills us with joy we have never known before and gives us rest of heart that we would have thought impossible. And that grace is still rescuing us because we still tend to forget what is important, real and true. We still tend to look to the physical world for our comfort. We still fail to remember in given moments that we really do have a Heavenly Father. Grace has done a wonderful thing for us and continues to do more and more. For the man, the Father who trusts in the Lord, God is always providing for you. Not just the initial provision through His Son, but through His Son, He is always blessing you. He is always providing for you. As you put your faith in Him, He is giving you His wisdom, His strength, His patience. To love your wife, to care for your family, serve in the body of Christ, and reach out to those in your community who are in need of a godly godly fatherly example. How important do you think the love of a father is these days? Some of you take it for granted because you have it daily. But for those who don't have it, how precious do you think it is? There's a Spanish story of a father and son who had become estranged. The son ran away from home and the father set out to, to find him. And after several months, the father was getting desperate. He could not find his son Paco. And so he decided to put a, a note in the newspaper. Uh, and, and it read... All is forgiven. I love you, your father, to Paco. Meet me out in front of this office on Saturday. That Saturday, 800 Pacos showed up looking for forgiveness and love from their fathers. 800 of them. Even in your weakest hour as a father, as a godly father, you are still strong because you are trusting in the strength and wisdom of the Lord who will supply your every need as you rely upon Him. 
and not upon yourself. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. For as he, he is able to love, as, love others as God loves him. He instructs others out of the wisdom he receives from God through God's holy word. He provides out of what God has given to him. He protects not just physically out of the physical strength God gives you, but more so through the spiritual strength that you seek from God through Jesus Christ. Hence a godly father is also a man of prayer. Knowing that there are no perfect fathers in this world, this side of heaven anyway, a godly father strives to be consistent with the counsel of the Lord as one who encourages, disciplines, forgives, and cares for his family and others. Simply put, a godly father is able to bless his family and others because his heavenly father so blesses him through his son Jesus Christ. Again, how precious is the wisdom of God. I'll say it again. How precious is the wisdom of God. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in Him. So remember, fathers, God's wisdom is not only revealed to your children and others through what you say, but more importantly, in, in what you do, how you act, how you live your life. So what they see in your attitudes, your affections, the choice of words you use, and your overall behavior will significantly influence them as well towards godliness or ungodliness, towards God or away from God. And I say it again then. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in Him. Amen. Let's respond by turning in our uh, gray hymnals number 315. We're going to stand to sing verses 1 through 5, but verse 5 we're going to sing it a cappella.